Welcome to Vendée Radio. It is the 18th of February, the solemnity of St. Simeon, Bishop and Martyr, in the year of our Lord 2023. Tonight, I am joined by a fellow podcaster and researcher, Mr. Will Tucker. Mr. Tucker, welcome to Vendée Radio. Thank you very much. It's, I'm happy to be here. Well, it's very good to have you on the podcast. Mr. Tucker recently gave a highly interesting trilogy of presentations on the Dr. Deep State podcast, of which he is a co-host with Dr. Douglas Haugen. And generally in their podcast, Dr. Deep State, they explore esoteric biopolitics, geopolitics, deep politics, culture, and the ongoing ontological war, the war against reality by the enemies of the church, all within a, a Christian theological and eschatological framework. Now, Mr. Tucker has been conducting some research and reading peer-reviewed literature on Jewish Gnosticism and how it sheds light on the unfolding of world affairs today. I understand you've been reading about Kabbalistic cosmology and how this connects to contemporary events. And Dr. T uh, Mr. Tucker has been working on a paper to this end, which is in collaboration with Dr. Haugen's forthcoming book, In Pursuit of the Metaverse. Now, as one of your commenters wrote, it takes some guts digging into this, but it needs some focus. So, Mr. Tucker, perhaps you could give an introduction to your paper and the, the research that you've been doing. Certainly, Peter. Thank you for the, for the invitation here to present this work. Um, as you mentioned, I've been collaborating with Dr. Douglas Hogan um, on his YouTube channel, Dr. Deep State, for the past year or so, in which we've been discussing the ideas that you've laid out there very clearly. Um, and about a month or so ago, I stumbled into this body of knowledge um, uh, centered around the uh, Rebbe Menachem Mendel Schneerson, who was the seventh Rebbe in the line of the Chabad Lubavitch um, Hasidic movement uh, in Judaism, which is a what would be called an ultra-Orthodox sect of Judaism that's very politically active, um, following in the Kabbalistic tradition. And I found a very interesting researcher, online author, um, professor uh, named Elliot Wolfson, um, who is himself Jewish, who has laid this out in terms of, um, you know, uh, contemporary theory. And um, I just, it just allowed me to connect so many dots about um, what's happening in the world. And, um, you know, it demystified Kabbalah for me, which is something I sense is um very prominent in the esoteric world, particularly Freemasonry. Um, you know, I was very in interested in researching Freemasonry for years. And, you know, once you get to a higher level of um, this, it's, it seems to be centered around Kabbalah and esoteric Judaism. So um, this research has really demystified that for me. And so um, I've, I've kind of laid out this presentation um, and I'm going to read uh, mostly from uh, a script here. So uh, Peter, please interrupt me as as you need, um, to, if you have any comments or questions you'd like to ask. Um, and 
Uh, do you, would you like me to go ahead and get started or do you have anything else you'd like to say? No, uh, absolutely. I will link in the guide to the video. I will link to your, your excellent trilogy of presentations on this topic, but by all means, uh, proceed. Terrific. Thank you. Um, so the following presentation was developed in conversation with my friend and mentor, Douglas Hogan, author of Seeing Through the Singularity, Uncovering the Cosmic Conspiracy, and his forthcoming book, In Pursuit of the Metaverse, Millennial Dreams and Political Religion. The latter work has been a collaborative effort coinciding with our discussions on his YouTube, YouTube channel, Dr. Deep State, where we explore the political theology of the deep state that employs the dialectic as a weapon in the ontological war over reality. Vladimir Lenin described the dialectic as the study of contradiction and the very essence of objects. And so in following, Marxism seeks to shatter the vessels of reality by accelerating the contradictions present in the order of being to harness their revolutionary potential. Nationalism and globalism are seen from this view through the lens of Judeo-centric political theology that aspires to realize an eschatological world to come through a managed dialectic of Zionism and communism. In this presentation, I'll explore the concept of Jewish antinomianism through the lens of the Kabbalistic thought concerned with establishing the conditions for the coming of the Messiah. This research is drawn primarily from the work of Elliot Wolfson, a contemporary historian of Jewish mysticism, Kabbalah, Sabbateanism, and the Chabad movement. His book, Open Secret, Post-Messianic Messianism, and the Mystical Revision of Menachem Mendel Sneerson, his essay, Light Through Darkness, the Ideal of Human Perfection in the Zohar, as well as online lectures about Chabad Messianism that form the bulk of the following information. In keeping, we will unpack and unfold five layers of esoteric theosophy and shrouding Jewish mystical concepts of creation, the Godhead, redemption, and the law. <clears throat> Excuse me for a second. These layers include, number one, the Kabbalistic cosmology, how good and evil are distributed in creation and how this pretends the future of justice and redemption. Number two, the two Torahs, how according to rabbinic tradition, two Torahs were revealed to Moses by God on Mount Sinai. The first was the spiritual Torah, a messianic law of permission, transcending limits corresponding to the tree of life. After Moses smashes these tablets, a second Torah is issued by God, defined by the tree of knowledge of good and evil, corresponding to distinctions and prohibitions. Embedded in the second revealed Torah is the esoteric teaching of the first, the hidden teaching of the world to come that must be fostered by ritual transgression, illicit gnosis, and double standards in order to transform reality and overcome the law. Number three is antinomian transcendence how one of the most daring paradoxes of the Kabbalah and the key to the messianic secret, to quote Wolfson, is that the nullification of the law is the most pristine adherence to the law, and piety is the gesture of supreme piety. Within the rabbinic teachings of the Talmud and Kabbalah, the good is contained within the evil, and the evil exists, and the law exists to be broken. The process of redemption is resolved by incorporating the evil into the good. Number four, Post-Messianic Messianism. <clears throat> Excuse me. How the fulfillment of a Messianic age does not necessarily require a Messiah. The dialectical method of the rabbinic tradition always arrives at exceptions to the law. Such Messianic examples as Abraham Abelafia, Sabbatai Zevi, Jacob Frank, 
the Baal Shem Tov and Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson transact in the typologies of the personal Messiah prophesied in sacred scripture, but filtered through the lens of antinomian paradox. The advent of the Messiah, his potential coming, is more potent than his actual arrival for the project of global transformation. By transcending oppositions, whole, all oppositions, holy and unholy, permissible and forbidden, presence and absence, Jew and non-Jew, the Messiah's overcoming of the ethnocentric exceptionalism of the chosen people stands as his greatest dilemma. The true Messiah will be the one to reveal that there will be no Messiah. Number five, the worship of repentance. As announced by the Chabad Rebbe Schneerson, in continuity with the Hasidic tradition, the advent of the Messianic age will be defined by a shift from the worship of the law and commandments to the worship of repentance. Like the aforementioned two Torahs, this transition marks the public revealing of the hidden Torah on the world stage in the form of esoteric geopolitics. Repentance, however, within the rabbinic tradition, embodies the paradox central to the antinomian assault on the Western tradition and its Christian logos. Repentance for Schneerson is defined as the transvaluation of guilt into innocence, as a form of worship, as an agency that alchemically transposes vice into virtue, collapsing the framework of binary distinctions. This concept sheds light on the contemporary phenomena known as revelation of the method or predictive programming, whereby esoteric agendas are revealed in the public eye to induce a form of public consent that transforms the guilty into the innocent. The greater the guilt, the greater the capacity for transcendence. The dialectic implied in the open secret, where the revealed is simultaneously concealed, propels the psychic transformation of the population in pursuit of unveiled secrets that lead further away from the Christian theophany. <clears throat> okay, so um, back to number one, the Kabbalistic cosmology. After the contraction of Einsoff, God fell into duality by the act of creation. Oral Torah and Kabbalistic texts are replete with references to the existing world being under the domain of the evil side of God that incorporates hate, punishment, and unholiness. The two pillars of God, mercy and judgment, must be reunified by the tikkun of the people below, whose action will thus bring about a reunification of God above and return of the primordial harmony. By the act of creation, the Zohar tells us that God had to go from being infinite infinity to finite, perfect to imperfect, embodied to unembodied. This is the principle guiding the 10 sephirots and their emanations, the channels by which God shatters into reality. God seeks through the actions of man to return to unified form. For man, this requires bringing unholiness into unity with holiness. Man will be redeemed by returning God to the unity from which he has fallen. This is the task of the Messiah. Tikkun Elohim, Tikkun Olam. The demonic realm is viewed as a link in the continuous chain of being. There are no absolute gaps in nature, so there is no break between the divine and the demonic. Zohar reveals that Hashem created the world through language. As the world below is a reflection of what is above, language is fragmented as God has fallen into fragmentation. As God is sporadic and unpredictable, so too is language. Culture, therefore, is an epiphenomenon of language that is in a perpetual state of flux. This explains the emphasis of critical theory on political correctness in order to change reality through speech. Mm. Number two, the two Torahs. The Talmud, Zohar, and texts of the Delurionic Kabbalah state that during the time of Exodus, when Moses ascended to Mount Sinai, the Torah was delivered in two iterations. 
The first revelation given to Moses by God is known by the rabbinic teachings as the spiritual Torah, the Torah of the tree of life. This Torah contained the secrets of redemption for the fallen state of reality and the exile of the chosen people. Likewise, the sacred set of commandments contained the revelation of the Messiah who would unify the sufferings and oppositions intrinsic to the fallen world. When Moses descended to deliver his revelation to the Israelites, he discovered them engaged in idolatry, worshiping the golden calf. Out of disgust, Moses smashes these tablets to the ground and returned to the summit to receive the Ten Commandments, the second Torah contained in the first five books of the Bible. Whereas the first set were defined by the unification of the holy and the unholy, the permissible and forbidden, the second Torah brought the Israelites under the strict discipline of the law, emphasizing prohibition. These commandments were understood to be the law of the age, identified with the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The epic in which distinctions like good and evil, holy and unholy, clean and unclean, Jew and non-Jew, are held in strict opposition. Paradoxically, in Moses' smashing of the first tablets, he fulfilled the, ma- the rabbinic maxim that the nullification of the Torah is its foundation. By smashing the first commandments, they became diffused into the second Torah, made accessible only by the secret gnosis of rabbinic insight and innovation. By unveiling the hidden Torah contained in the law, the sages emphasized transgression as a means of transcending the law and ushering in the world to come. The task of the Messiah would be to unleash the hidden teaching of the first Torah contained in the second by undoing the distinctions implicit in reality, by accelerating the, the contradictions. This concept is known as antinomianism. Number three, antinomianism. The nomos. Can I? Sure. Sorry, can I just come in at this point because I think this is something. I mean, these are deep waters that that we're swimming in here. But just here to to provide something of a just a little sketch of a biblical foundation in continuity with the the church's exegesis of Holy Scripture. I think it's very much acknowledged that rabbinic Judaism is the continuation of the pharisaical tradition, which, as you've said, at its heart has the Mishnah, this, this idea of a, this oral tradition, this second Torah, as you've said, which then was carried by the descendants of the Pharisees, uh, their followers, after the destruction of Jerusalem to Babylon. And formed the the heart of the what became the Talmud, and it seems there became further corrupted with Babylonian mystery cults to to grow even more esoteric and gnostic. But if you if you read an honest reading, particularly of the New Testament, I think shows that there was this this heretical part of uh, the Jewish people who were going to carry this revolution forward in history in salvation history so obviously you've just mentioned the the golden calf worshippers and then later in the the book of amos it says it's written you even took up the tent of moloch and the star of your god raphan models of them which you made for yourselves um, now that's that's notable because it resonates with the greek in a passage in Acts that I'm going to read as well. Um, and then our Lord says in, in Mark 7, 8, for leaving the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pots and of cups and many other things you do like to these. And then that's 
obviously further, much, much more sharply explicated in, in the Gospel of John, the uh, condemnation of the, the Pharisees and the Jews at that time. And then if you look at St. Stephen's speech before the Sanhedrin, where he gives this long explanation of the coming of the Messiah, and he says, and he talks about the Israelite people and God's providential care of them. And he talks about their their exodus from Egypt. And he said, quote, and they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifices to the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. And God turned and gave them up to serve the host of heaven, as it is written in the books of the prophets. Did you offer victims and sacrifices to me for 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? And you took unto you the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God, Remphan, figures whom you made to adore them. And I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Then later he says to the Sanhedrin, you stiff necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears. You always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did. So do you do also. Which of the prophets have you have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them who foretold of the coming of the just one, of whom you have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. Now hearing these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed with their teeth at him. And then later, when St. Paul's writing to the Thessalonians, he says, quote, for you, brethren, are become followers of the churches of God, which are in Judea, in Christ Jesus. For you also have suffered the same things from your own countrymen, even as they have from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and have persecuted us and please not God and are adversaries to all men, prohibiting us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, to fill up their sins always, for the wrath of God is come upon them to the end. But we, brethren, being taken away from you for a short time in sight, not in heart, have hastened the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. And then in the book of Apocalypse, in the letters to the seven churches, our Lord says to the angel of the church of Smyrna, these things saith the first and the last who was dead and is alive. I know thy tribulation, thy poverty, but thou art rich and thou art blasphemed by them that say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Then later to the church, to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, quote, I know thy works. Behold, I have given before thee a door opened, which no man can shut, because thou hast a little strength and hast kept my word and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will bring of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them come to thee and adore before thy feet, and they shall know that I have loved thee. End quote. So what you're saying is deeply consonant with traditional Catholic hermeneutics of, of Holy Scripture and understanding of, of salvation history. And, and I think you're going to come on to the very fact that this has been purposefully obviated and obscured particularly in the period since the Second Vatican Council, is at the heart of the crisis that the church is in at the moment and, and by the church, therefore, the world, and why things are now progressing in this Kabbalistic dialectic that, that you're outlining. 
Absolutely. Thank you for, thank you for that, Peter. Um, yeah, in the rabbinic tradition, there's a, um, a saying that what the Tanakh or the Old Testament forbids, the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud permits. Right. Um, and, you know, within the post-conciliar church, the teaching seems to have steered us in the direction in which um, the Jewish people and the rabbis are considered our elder brethren who, through these rabbinic texts, have some... Um, um, uh, purchase on the the secrets of the you know the tradition of the Israelites, but it's important to note that with the Talmud, the Mishnah, these works are written in reference to the pseudepigraphical works, which we'll get into a little bit later, as much as they are in the actual you know writings of the Old Testament and the um, uh, the Tanakh and the um, yeah the uh, the, the Deuteronomical texts. So this idea, and we'll get to this within antinomianism, is that the law exists to be broken is very fundamental to this project of Jewish messianism and uh, the process of deceiving the world to, to bring about what uh, seems to be the conditions for, you know, the Antichrist is what, you know, prophecy is suggesting. So um, I'll, I'll continue. Yeah. Uh, number three, antinomianism. The nomos within the Greek lexicon is the term designating the law. Antinomianism, therefore, is the transgression of the legal structure within a given social paradigm for the sake of accessing a realm beyond the law. This ambition is enshrined in the Zohar by the maxim that the nullification of the law is the most pristine fulfillment of the law. In order to get to a level of thinking that can embrace this form of paradox, one must radically reevaluate the distribution of righteousness and justice, good and evil. According to the rabbinic tradition traced from the Talmudic reinterpretation of the Old Testament to the Zohar and writings of Isaac Luria, the messianic efforts of uh, Shabtai Zevi and Jacob Frank to the present Kabbalistic interpretation of the Hasidim and rabbinic dynasty of the Chabad Lubavitch, the evil inherent in the cosmos, is an effort of the effect of the dual nature of the Godhead. The problem of sin and creation is approached from a radically different perspective known as the Sitra Okara, which translates to the other side. This concept stems from the dual and contradictory nature of God, who exists in both good and evil. Evil is a byproduct that must be captured into the good. The, the below section is in reference to the 13th century Castilian Cohen brothers, who wrote one of the most influential tracts uh, from this tradition known as the Treatise on the Emanations of the Left-Hand Side. The origin of the left-hand path, uh, this work places intense focus on the problem of sin in the book of Job, in which Satan is permitted to serve as an instrument of God's judgment. In the Christian tradition, Job functions as a type and prefigurement of Christ, who is innocent but is allowed to suffer for the good of his friends as a reminder of the fallen nature of the world in our exile from the realm of perfect justice. From the Kabbalistic per perspective, Job is a dupe who hasn't mastered the secrets of the left-hand path. Quoting Wolfson from this passage, from his uh, his passage, Descent as a Spiritual Perfection, the incorporation of the other side in the religious life is unequivocally affirmed by the Zohar in several contexts. There is, first of all, the Zohar claim that the path of the spiritual adept is one of descent, followed by ascent. That is, before one achieves the status of holiness, one must descend into the realm of evil. There is a clear connection, as Tishbi has noted, between this theme and the idea later developed by the Sabbatean theology on the basis of Isaac Luria's teaching concerning the necessary descent into the demonic shells, 
um, or as formulated subsequently by the acidum, descent for the sake of ascent. The secret, the sacred emerges out of the profane. There is no divine worship except amidst darkness and no good except within evil. Thus the perfection of all is good and evil together and afterwards to ascend to the good. This is complete worship. The inclusion of the demonic in the spiritual path is also affirmed in connection with Job, whose fatal flaw, according to the Zohar, was that he separated good and evil instead of con containing them together. It states, Job never gave any portion to the other side, the Sitra Okara. As, as it is written, he offered up burnt offerings according to the number of them all. The burnt offerings offering rises upward. He did not give any portion to the other side, for had he given him a portion, he would not have uh, overcome him afterwards. Come and see. Just as he separated and did not contain the good and the evil together, so in the exact manner he was judged. God gave him good and then evil and then returned him to the good. Thus it is fitting for a person to know good and to know evil and then to return to, to the good. That is the secret of faith. In the Zohar, the mitzvot have one of two purposes, either to strengthen and sustain the realm of holiness by maintaining the flow of divine light from the uppermost grades to the lowest, or to neutralize the forces of evil so that they do not interfere with the unity of the holy realm. Sacrifices in particular, according to the Zohar, are, in an are an instance where we quite literally give the devil his due. Making sacrifice to the mnemonic is a necessary component of Jewish liturgical practice in order to, the to avoid the calamities of Job. The key to divine secrets can be explained by the fact that only one who knows both the demonic and the divine can understand the underlying unity of the two realms, and only one who knows this can unify God, for by uniting the left with the right, one regains an original wholeness or unity of opposites that is present in the Godhead before the process of differentiation of unfolds. Continuing from our theme of ontological warfare and the mixing of reality with its opposite, the Kabbalistic sage, our, our Moses, wrote, all reality is dependent on peace and war, which are opposites. And this is an established tradition handed over from all to all masters of the hidden wisdom, that reality in general could not exist except through the, the existence that do good and that do evil, those that establish and sustain, and those that exterminate and destroy, those that give reward and those that punish. The dialectical schema described above depicts a reality as a series of paradoxes and contradictions. In order to obtain the reunification of all things in the messianic age to come, according to this view, the tension between such oppositional concepts must be aggravated and harnessed by the masters of the hidden wisdom. As Lenin stated, accelerate the contradictions. Viewed from this lens, the dialectic is clearly an assault on the logical premises of the Western tradition. Platonic realism and Aristotelian logic undergird the biblical hermeneutics of the church fathers comprising the synthesis between natural law and the revelation of redemption incarnated in the Christian logos, the word made flesh. The logical presuppositions that underpin this reality are based upon the three laws of thought, the law of identity, the law of the excluded middle, and the law of non-contradiction. In contrast, the dialectic seeks to undermine this foundation by uncovering a loophole in the nature of identity in which the existence of a concept is contingent upon the existence of its opposite. That opposites are the same by fact of their opposition, as we will later see what Nicholas de Cusa called the coincidentia oppositorum. In this light, antinomianism appears as a strategy to deconstruct the world, to quarantine the great I am between being and nothingness, to sequester him in a perpetual state of becoming. It was not the revelation and carving of the Torah tablets, but their smashing that set the law into motion. 
the antinomian seeks to transcend into the hypernomian and claim for itself the sovereignty of the lawgiver. For that which exceeds the law establishes the law. Sovereign is he who decides on the exception, to quote Carl Schmidt. This capacity to transmute the legal framework by subverting it grants authority and exceptional status to those who grasp the hidden gnosis, who by sleight of hand can unfold an identity into its other while enfolding the consciousness into deception. It is important to observe the antinomian impulse as it appears in contemporary politics and popular culture as an expression of the messianic project as described in the Zohar and other Jewish mystical texts. Likewise, the dialectic itself can be viewed as a key feature, if not a direct product of rabbinic innovation. This desire to destroy via contradiction and paradox is also essential for understanding the animus of 20th century critical theory regimes, regimes such as the Frankfurt School. From this view, we can witness the dialectic between Zionism and communism as guided by the same messianic goal, capturing nationalism and globalism into the same political orbit. The dialectical strategy of contradiction is applied to the common ground of the Mosaic law as a way to generate political will, etheric energy, and engender the artificial demons known as egregores. <clears throat> Number four, post-messianic messianism. This following section will focus on the 20th century rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, who was anointed as the seventh and final rebbe of the extremely powerful and influential sect of Hasidic Judaism known as Chabad Lubavitch. The rebbe who passed away in 1994 was very explicit about his earthly mission to bring about the unveiling of the Jewish Messiah known as the Moshiach and, uh, and transforming reality to receive his coming. Among his followers, Schneerson... Sorry, can I just say something on you mentioned the frankfurt school in the previous section there and i think in one of your podcasts you, you brought up the fact that the public is given these groundbreaking avant-garde thinkers like sigmund freud or karl marx or yuval noah harari from a certain background and their ideas are presented as as original and as you say transformative revolutionary breaking open the forms but one thing you pointed out is that these figures are steeped in an esoteric tradition which is not made apparent to the the general public to take Yuval Noah Harari his first book was uh what was it Jewish magic before the Kabbalah yeah. um, so they are conversant with something something much much deeper yes and it's it's much easier to trace the animus of these um you know critical theory regimes whenever you see it through this lens and you see what there's an eschatology you know uh, an esoteric eschatology attached to the type of liberation that they're trying to um to uh, bring on onto the world so um yeah, I mean, Adorno, Walter Benjamin, um, you know, the, the Frankfurt School, I mean, almost to a T, every, every thinker uh, was involved in this tradition in, in some way. And, um, you know, we'll see how later on that, that plays out um, in this, uh, this uh, uh, quest to subdue the, the Christian West. Um, the Rebbe, who passed away in 1994, was very explicit about his earthly mission to bring about the unveiling of the Jewish Messiah known as the Mashiach 
and transforming reality to receive his coming. Among his followers, Nearson was widely believed to be the actual Messiah, awaiting his reception on the global stage. As stated before, the research, this research has been drawn from the writing of scholar Elliot Wolfson, uh, who posited the notion of post-Messianic Messianism to explain the continuation of Snearson's project in the wake of his absence. Before I unravel this concept of post-Messianism, it will be necessary to first examine the influence of the Neoplatonic tradition emerging from late antiquity on the divergent thought of post-Temple Judaism and the early church fathers. Following from Philo to Plotinus into the writings of Pseudo-Dionysus and St. Augustine, the, great the Greek philosophical tradition of the Logos and the great chain of being were incorporated into the framework of early Christian soteriology. The three primary Neoplatonic themes that informed the metaphysical synthesis of the New Covenant were the, the theory of emanation, the union mystica, and apophatic or negative theology. The theory of emanation is an idea derived within Platonic thought from the problem of the one and the many, a debate that stems from questions surrounding the process of creation and the order of reality. According to Plato, God is defined as the one that creates and organizes reality into transcendent unity. The many are the complex differences other than God that flow from the one into the imperfection of the temporal world. The problem arises from how the plurality of the many are unified into the order of the one. The Platonic theory of forms was posed as a solution where eternal archetypes that emanate from the one mediate between the multiplicity, multiplicity of the many. Where there is a chair in the world, the perfected archetype of the chair exists in the realm of forms, mediating its chairness back to the transcendent reality of the one by a process known as hypostasis. This, great, this series of hypostatic mediations came to be known by the Neoplatonist as the great chain of being that emanates reality from its sublime source. The similar concept of the unio mystica the mystical union becoming one with God is the idea that man can climb out of the proverbial platonic cave of shadows beyond the realm of the material and into the transcendent oneness of the absolute ground of being. In short, the union mystica is the path of reunion and return to God. The last theme necessary for understanding how Neoplatonism resurfaced in disparate but similar forms in the rabbinic and Christian traditions is the method known as negative or apophatic theology. Via negativa in Latin is the path of negation. Where to quote Socrates, the thinker realizes that true wisdom proceeds from the knowledge that we know nothing. In order to come to know God or the oneness of being, one must proceed by a process of negations rather than affirmations about the nature of God, since God exceeds our capacity to comprehend his full nature. As St. Thomas Aquinas said, it is not possible for us to know what God is, but what God is not. While for Aquinas and pseudo-Dionysus, Negative theology was utilized as a method of hum to humbly approach the incomprehensibility of the God who is the ultimate source of goodness, beauty, and truth. The rabbinic apophatic approach arrives at Ein Sof, literally meaning without limit, Ein Sof, who, unlike God the Father, is an explicitly negative impersonal designation that not only transcends our notions of absolute truth, but obliterates them altogether. Elsewhere, the Kabbalists refer to Ein Sof simply as nothingness or emptiness that negates the categories of being and nothingness, existence and non-existence. To say that it exists already is saying too much. The limitlessness of Einsoff is translated to mean infinity, without end, but also without duration. This concept of the infinitesimally minute moment of time breaking into the expanse of infinity, mirroring the Big Bang, will be key to the Kabbalistic notion of the Messiah we will discuss later. It is important to trace these strains of influence deriving from Neoplatonic concepts in order to distinguish how these problems in ontology 
resolved in the tradition of Catholic theology and adopted later by Kabbalistic speculation on the nature of reality. The Prisca Theologia that emerged during the Renaissance was an attempt to syncretize all religious systems via the transcendence of the one in Neoplatonic ontology. This effort survives today in the perennialist school of traditionalism. The Union Mystica and Great Chain of Being correspond generally to Catholic teachings on the sacramental economy, the mystical body of Christ, the communion of saints, and the hypostatic union. By partaking in the most blessed sacrament, we Catholics are absorbed into mystical union with the divine through the medium of Christ's eternal sacrifice, resolving the problem of the one and the many. For rabbinic thinkers, as stated above, the source of God in the world has been shattered into innumerable shards of light that must be regathered in order to repair God to his oneness, a process known as tikkun Elohim. God can only come to know himself through the collective effort of man, similar to Hegel's concept of the becoming of the absolute idea. The famous Sephirot tree, also called Tree of Life, imagined by the tradition of Kabbalah, is a model for the paths by which God descended into reality, splintering into increasing disparity along the way. The path of Zimzum, that is the constriction of the Godhead, zigzags between nodes known as the Sephirot or spheres that are unfolded into binary distinctions. These distinctions are the subjects of endless speculation by generations of Kabbalists for generating models like Quicksilver for the redemption of the world to come. The theory of emanation is a counter strategy to unite the many into the oneness of the metaconsciousness, reverse engineering the great chain of being. Although the Rebbe employed the standard symbolic tropes of the personal Messiah established in rabbinic literature, according to Wolfson, this does not, this does not mean he upheld a strict allegiance to a literal interpretation. Seen through the prism of the Hasidic tradition, there can be no material reality without heeding its symbolic correlate. There is no literal that is not metaphoric. Or Sneerson said, there's no Namish that is not Mashal. Actuality for Sneerson was the nexus between the allegorical and the mundane. What happens in materia corresponds in spirit to and vice versa. This is the principle of magic. The actuality of the Messiah is manifested in that which performs the work of the Messiah. According to this logic, the rhetoric of a personal Mashiach serves as a signpost to, to a state of unity in which all individuation, including the individuated sense of a redeemer, passes into the formless essence of Einsoff. Collective and personal redemption are unfolded in this dialectic where the limits of the one and the many hinge upon the relationship with, with a redeemer obtained through self-nullification, converging into a nullified reality. This leap into metaconsciousness is preceded by a shedding of personal boundaries into impersonhood, into the meta-ontological void. To quote Franz Kafka, the Messiah will come only when he is no longer necessary. He will come only on the day after his arrival. He will not come on the last day, but on the very last. Following this logic of this mystical gnosis by negation, the true Messiah will be the one to reveal that there is no Messiah. For Sneerson, the image of the personal Messiah may have been utilized rhetorically to liberate one from the belief in the personal Messiah in favor of an impersonal or collective messianism. <clears throat> After fleeing the Soviet Union and Ukraine during the Second World War, Sneerson settled with his father-in-law, the sixth Chabad Rebbe in Crown Heights, New York, and established headquarters at 770 Eastern Parkway in Brooklyn. In order to reveal the inner logic of the dialectic between nationalism and globalism, it is necessary to understand these, these terms as concealing the dynamic we posited above between Zionism and communism. Sneerson's notion of Zionism must be understood as allegorical as well as pragmatic in which the nation of Israel becomes the model for the Novos Ordo Seclorum. American exceptionalism would serve as an outer garment for Jewish exceptionalism. 
As Wolfson states, the freedom of worship secured by the American Constitution would operate as a linchpin in this overall post-Holocaust messianic strategy. Snearson stressed that in the present, the situation of Jews in America takes precedence over the situation in the state of Israel. And while this will change in the future, even the land of Israel will spread to all lands. And this includes America as well. One must acknowledge Snearson's commitment to re religious Zionism, but it is also necessary to take into account the fact that he affirmed a conception of the land that is decidedly diasporic, inasmuch as the boundary of what constitutes the land extends to the entire globe of the earth. In the non-localized space of the messianic ideal, the mental zone of non-locality, America occupies a special place. Within the Eucharistic doctrine of the Catholic Church, we believe that by consuming the consecrated elements in the state of grace, we are conjoined to the mystical body of Christ. The one and the many are unified by the act of sacrifice by our Lord and Messiah, who offers his body and blood for the atonement of sins, that we may be received into union with the divine. The host is transubstantiated from mundane to transcendent by the liturgical act of consecration. In contrast, the dialectical approach to messianism problematized by the Hasidic tradition, interweaves notions of authentic and counterfeit, sacred and profane, member and collective, one of the Rebbe's most iconic rituals. At the conclusion of Snearson's speaking engagements, he would distribute $1 bills, said to be from his personal bank account and in mint condition, to his followers accompanied by a personal blessing. This would come to be called the Rebbe's Sunday dollars, also called magic dollars. In Catholic typology, Sunday represents the eighth day of the Passover liturgy, the new day in which the new man is resurrected into his new body, hence the transmogrification of the Sabbath on the seventh day into the eighth, signifies the fulfillment of the law in Anno Domini. Snearson's counterfeiture of the Eucharistic liturgy inverted the transubstantiated host into pure simulacra in the form of debased currency without referent. The dollar bill contains the esoteric insignia that signifies the occult secret destiny of America, to quote Manly P. Hall. In coming to America, the Rebbe became enamored with the mystical notion of the U.S. as a model for other nations in the world to come. According to Snearson, the superpower status of the U.S. was related to its slogan contained in its currency of In God We Trust. Wilson states, Snearson's astutely astutely perceived that the American psyche is still very much beholden to the legacy of its spiritual past. The cardinal principle of separation of church from state is itself an expression of a deep-seated religious, we might even say mystical fervor, fueled by the utopian vision e pluribus unum from many one. For Chabad, the location of, the ex of this expression of trust in God in something as materialistic as money signifies the need to transpose the material into its higher spiritual destiny to rectify the material through the material. The materialism of American capitalism seen from this paradoxical view is a harbinger of the redemption of the material world through a form of economic transubstantiation. The federalism of the United States, its emphasis on scientific materialism and economic imperialism serves as a model and vessel for the e pluribus unum, the imminent unity of the one and the many and the novus ordo seclorum, the new order of the world to come in which the messianic ideal of Zion is globally realized. A goal found ubiquitously throughout the writings of the rabbinic period from the time of Maimonides and especially prevalent in the contemporary messianic mission of Rebbe Schneerson was the mandate to implement the Noahide laws upon Gentile society. On their face, these seven commandments set explicitly for the non-Jew seem in keeping with the Ten Commandments and traditional moral law. 
However, when their secret meaning is traced from the Talmud and other rabbinic commentaries, they appear clearly as a strategy for the annihilation and auto-demolition of the Christian West, West and the Catholic social order. In 1992, in honor of Rebbe Schneerson, U.S. Law 102-298 was passed by Congress under recommendation by President Bush, establishing the seven Noahide laws as honorary decree. Due to the enormously influential and persuasive efforts of the Chabad Lubavitch, the Noahide laws have become a primary agenda, agenda for the political right in America and other modern nations, earmarked within anti-woe, pro-life, and focused on the family policies without proper public scrutiny. In following with the Messianic project of Sneerson in 1982, American President Ronald Reagan proclaimed April 4th to be the National Day of Reflection and subsequently has come, what subsequently has become to be called National Education Day in honor of the Chabad Rebbe's birthday. Reagan stated, by focusing attention on the ancient ethical principles and moral values, which are the foundation of our moral character as a nation, and, the, and on the time-honored truth that education uh, must be more than factual enlightenment, it must enrich the character as well as the mind. While reaffirming eternal validity of the God-given seven Noahide laws with all their ramifications for people of all faiths, you've expressed most forcefully the real spirit of, of the American nation. More than ever before, the civilized world of today will look to the United States of America for guidance as behooves the world's foremost superpower, not merely in the ordinary sense of this term, but even more importantly, as a moral and spiritual superpower whose real strength must ultimately derive from, the un, from an unalterable commitment to the universal moral code of these commandments. Indeed, it is a commitment. It, it is this commitment to the same divine truths and values that more than anything else unites all Americans in the true sense of e pluribus unum. Likewise, most industrial nations have followed suit, passing the Noahide laws at the behest of the Lubavitchers and the Rebbe, demonstrating the inordinate political influence of this small sect that comprises only a small segment of world Jewry. Even though these laws outwardly condemn deviant sexual behavior and polytheism, member countries of the neoliberal order honor these edicts as unquestionable stand-ins for the moral law. According to Maimonides and many other Talmudic sages, violating these commandments is punishable by decapitation decapitation, shedding light on the prophecies of Revelation 20. The first Noahide law forbids idolatry, which according to the rabbinic definition means worship of the Holy Trinity. Just as the Chabad Lubavitch is heavily involved in the Russian and Ukrainian regimes, President Trump and Governor DeSantis are mutual defectors to this messianic organization. After meeting in the Oval Office with Chabad representatives in March 2018, his Lubavitcher son-in-law and daughter, visited the Rebbe's gravesite on the eve of 2020 of the 2020 election to pay tribute. Similarly, the gubernatorial decrees of Ron DeSantis against woke culture and so-called anti-Americanism always contain a caveat for anti-Semitism laws and the campaign for Noahidism. It is important to note as well that the 21st degree of the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry is the Noahide degree, reserved for the Gentile judges that will execute the jurisprudence of the Noahide laws. <clears throat> To quote Elliot Wilson, the millenarian enthusiasm that fueled Snearson's mission from inception was about fostering the true expansion of knowledge into an epistemological shift parallel with the change in cosmological orientation. The, this millenarian enthusiasm toward an epistemological shift that radically reorient, reorients mass consciousness echoes the eccentric Jesuit paleontologist and mystic Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. To quote my collaborator Douglas Hagen, 
Chardin and his work, The Phenomena of Man, famously put forward the concept of the new sphere, a spiritual version of the lithosphere or biosphere, the collective consciousness of all human beings, as though it is a physical substance. Chardin posited that it was the destiny of this new sphere to evolve into a future humanity of egoless, immortal, electrical Christ energy. Individualism is just some passing phase which we are to overcome in Jesus and be united with one another. The soul slash mind is reinserted in a great 20th century New Age tradition as mere energy, compatible with the growing all before just so much electrical wiring. Christianity version 2.0 leads towards an immatized eschaton of history as an omega point brought about by man's exteriorization of his nervous system through electronic networks. It would seem that the present agenda to implement the Internet of Bodies and the Internet of Things, as outlined by the World Economic Forum, would fulfill the utopian vision of, of the one and the many, or to quote Schneerson's Hasidic predecessor, the Baal Shem Tov, when the furthest extents of materialism become wellsprings of the innermost wisdom, then Moshiach will come. This is our mandate now. We are all to become wellsprings. Hasidism throughout its history has been committed to divulging mystical secrets, the hidden Torah, spreading the wellsprings outward to instill the concept of divinity for proper worship. The coming of Moshiach must be prepared by the conversion of nature, culture, and material reality to become vessels for the mystical language of Kabbalah, to become vessels for the sparks of the divine. Just as God spoke creation into being, the insertion of man-made language and code into the natural order fulfills the assignment of the Moshiach. These wellsprings pour forth the hidden gnosis of the secret Torah, which envelops the mystical coalescence of opposites, transcending the law and enfolding holy and profane, the permissible and forbidden. The nullification of the natural order invites a leap of being into the holy other. Accelerating the contradictions opens the wellsprings. According to Schneerson, the worship appropriate to the messianic epoch is the worship of the aspect of what is called Yehida, which means the unification of this dimension of the soul unique to the Jewish people and by virtue of which the Jew can be united with the one true essence at the source of emanation. A nullification of existence, which is also described as the absorption and the oneness of Einsoff, of the infinite. So the aspect of Yehida makes it possible for one who has achieved this annihilation of existence to be incorporated in the oneness of Einsoff. Messianic consciousness is about overcoming the individuated sense of self. The righteous Jew is assimilated into the impersonal metaconsciousness of the Moshiach. The aspect of oneness that is unique to the Jewish soul and not the satanic spheres of the non-Jew, to quote Schneerson, achieves the nullification of the self as well as the annihilation of existence to be reincorporated. As Elliot Wolfson is fond of saying, only the Jew has, as it were, has what it takes to become nothing. By unifying the separate and connecting the many to the one, the Kabbalist attempts to perform the great leap of being through self-nullification by negating the distinctions inherent in the present reality. Through absorption into the infinite negation, only the Jew has access to the vine. In keeping with the tradition of the Lyrianic Kabbalah and Sabbatean Frankism, the contemporary Chabad movement holds that the redemption of the world depends solely on the nation of Israel. Chabad thinking presumes that the Jew is essentially different from other nations, insofar as the Jewish soul alone has the mark of the divine. To quote the late Rebbe Schneerson, the non-Jewish soul stems from the three demonic spheres, while the Jewish soul stems from holiness. There is a qualitative difference between the soul of the Jew and the soul of all other ethnicities. The latter possesses an animal soul, which derives from the aspect of the shell, also called the husk or klepot. 
from the demonic other side, Sitra Okara, which is located in the left chamber of the heart, whereas the former is endowed with the divine soul, the spark that emanates from the light of the infinite and is located in the brain as well as the right chamber of the heart. This thinking narrows the gap between creator and created in regard to the Jewish nation. The Kabbalists in their mystical practice saw themselves as partaking in the divine drama of creation, revelation, and redemption, becoming in their mystical union with the divine, Hashem himself, in order to rectify God and to change his reality. In contrast, however, the mystical soteriology of Sneerson and the Kabbalists, this messianic leap of being employs double standards uh, in order to resolve the problems of evil. From this perspective, the redemption of Jews and non-Jews must take separate paths due to the origin of evil in the cosmos. According to Talmud and Zohar, the ten kings of Edom mentioned in Genesis 36 represent the stronghold of unholiness in the earthly and political realm. Edom being associated with Esau symbolizes that which is rejected by God, like the non-Jewish soul that originates in the satanic spheres, while the kings of Israel are descended from Jacob and stem from holiness. Likewise, all Gentile empires, especially those that exercise authority over the Jewish nation, are iterations of Edom, the kingdoms of evil that plague the earth. From this perspective, all Gentile civilization descends from Edom and must be blotted out by the Messiah at the dawning of the world to come. According to the medieval Kabbalists and their followers, Rome, Christianity, and most specifically the Roman Catholic Church, stands as the preeminent iteration of the Edomic power that must be subdued and destroyed by Israel. A common motif in rabbinic interpretations of the Old Testament identifies a pattern where the prophets first descend into Egypt before they are given revelation. As we have seen above with Job, this consistent theme foreshadows Jesus' escape to Egypt as an infant and his descent into hell for three days after his death. From the rabbinic perspective, Egypt is viewed as an ancient kingdom of Edom typified by idolatry, sorcery, and oppression. Wolfson states, Just as God had to discharge the impure forces and divine thought before God could emanate the holy forces, so too the human soul must refine itself and remove all dross before it can attain the level of holiness. This image of spiritual transformation drawn from alchemy is related by the Zohar to the verse, and Abram went down to Egypt. The esoteric meaning of Abram's descent into Egypt as that of the children of Israel in the time of Moses is spiritual purification by means of contact with the demonic. Moses Cordovero, in his commentary on this this section in the Zohar, says, As silver is refined in lead, so so holiness is refined through the power of the demonic. Before partaking of holiness, entering into the Sephirotic realm, it is necessary to go down into the depths of the unholy. Evil here is not defined as that which violates the Mosaic law, but instead as that which apprehends the messianic promise of Israel's incorporation into the absolute divine. Insofar as Edom exists in a state that is not fully submitted to the dominion of Israel, the advent of the Messiah will be frustrated. Just so, in order to accelerate his coming, the assignment of the mystic is to submerge himself into the realm of evil, that is, into Gentile society, to extract and purify the spark of holiness to be reincorporated into the messianic project. Rendered exoterically, this means to convert Gentile cultural norms to adopt the mystical secrets of Kabbalah and accept rabbinic legal authority. Just as all distinctions must be transcended in the world to come, the problem of evil must be resolved by eliminating the satanic source of the non-Jewish soul. 
The Adam Kadmon is a Kabbalistic concept that appears in the Zohar as the supreme primordial man who stands for the unification of the Sephirot into the oneness of the divine. This archetype of complete and perfected humanity stands as the mystical model for collective jewelry united within the tree of life by the Messiah who will lead them back to the Garden of Eden. The future redemption in this view is a reclamation of the past. The transmoral morality of the Kabbalah requires the purification of the non-Jew, rendering the unclean kosher. According to Wilson, the re- this the rectification will be complete only in the future when there will no longer be any distinction between Jew and non-Jew because the latter will be reincorporated into the post-human form that, like the pre-Lapsarian Adam, is neither Edom nor Israel insofar as there is no autonomous evil in opposition to the good. The post-human form for to which, according to this view, the non-Jew is destined will no longer hold autonomy to oppose the righteous. It would seem that since the existence of non-Jews hasn't been completely eliminated, through genetic, chemical, and cultural engineering, they have yet to be converted to the post-human form as a spiritual battery or data storage for the Jewish metaconsciousness. Following from our previous discussions on the antinomian character of the supernal Torah and the, the messianic redemption completed by the mystical union with the ineffable one, negative theology attempts to dismantle our pre-existing notions of reality and its transcendent source from a God that can be known. This notion posits the non-image of an unknowable infinitivity that can be accessed only by mystically deconstructing the parameters of reality. The via negativa, translated as the path of negation, must ontologically remove the divine consciousness from the chain of being. In what the 20th century Jewish philosopher Emmanuel Levinas called may ontology, the concept of non-being or the inability to be that leads to a transcendent realm other than being, presents a negative ontology whose ground is as un as an unknowable God known otherwise as Einsoff. A key concept that emerged in Western thought around the time of the Renaissance when Kabbalistic secrets began to seed themselves into the tradition of Christian mysticism was Nicholas de Cousa's notion of the coincidentia oppositorum, also called the unity of opposites, where the, the pre-Socratic dialectic imagined a subtle interrelation of opposites. De Cousa's innovation asserted a total conflation that assaults Aristotle's law of non-contradiction. By nature of being in contradiction, the opposite form is dependent on the other to define the limit of its existence, therefore making them the same by a paradoxical leap in logic by presupposing a primordial unity. The mutual coincidence of opposites for Dacuza was sought as a strategy to exploit a crevice in the fabric of reality for the purpose of Gnostic speculation, like the alchemical term of the coniutio, in this view, distinctions are, are seen as a byproduct of creation so that the nullification of their opposition reunifies binary distinctions into the whole, converging into the oneness of all being. Likewise, the dialectic is employed as an ontological weapon that destabilizes the structure of the chain of being by dissolving the differences that make it rational. In this section, we will examine how this negative ontological framework builds on the fluid assumptions of esoteric myth and imagines the concept of divine worship as a means of hastening redemption. By negating the limit between the thing and its other, this thinking grants itself permission into a unified field of association where meaning is no longer fixed to a transcendent source. Instead, the distinctions implicit in reality must be deconstructed in order to access the greater whole. As we will discuss later, the use of the veil that which separates exoteric and esoteric, sacred and profane, permissible and per- forbidden, becomes the privileged instrument of absolute power. 
The ability to decide, harness, and redefine the limit within the frame of the collective imagination has the capacity to recreate and manage social realities. The worship of the veil, that which captures and transmits the infinite light beyond our ability to comprehend it, takes many forms in Kabbalistic thought that we will explore as a way of understanding the seeming paradoxes of our present moment. As Elliot Wolfson states, worship therefore consists of two phases, the self-annihilation that results from the conjunction of the soul and the light of the infinite and the drawing down of that light through the fulfillment of Torah and ritual commandments to sustain the material world. As Sneer Zalman himself put the matter, it is precisely the nullification of something into nothing that causes the drawing down of nothing into something. However, from the perspective of the incorporation of all things in the infinite essence and the corollary principle of the coincidentia oppositorum, the two must be viewed as expressions of a single phenomena. In the metaphoric terms, in metaphoric terms, the dual movement of worship may be depicted as the ascent and descent of the angels on the ladder envisioned by Jacob in his dream at Bethel. According to the 20th century German philosopher and jurist Carl Schmidt, the sovereign is he who decides the exception. Like the use of the veil we mentioned above, the law whose limit is exceeded by the exception in a state of emergency is reestablished in the dialectical tension with that which claims the right to exceed it. From this view, the term hypernomian we have used is meant to position the spiritual ideal in the chasm between the affirmation of the law and its negation. The law derives its significance precisely from the possibility of the law being transcended. But the transcendence of the law is only possible by upholding the law. If the line of the law is not firmly instituted, it cannot be violated. In following, he who can uphold the double standard and apply the extra-legal mandate is the sovereign who, th through mystically fusing the material with the transcendent, becomes God. Like the magician who unfolds his handkerchief or the matador who unfurls his cape, the handler of the veil claims the limit of perception and controls reality. By playing a game of disclosure and concealment, purchases the right to perform the effacement of distinctions. Sovereign is he who decides the limit of the veil. Sovereign is he who extends or lifts the mask mandate. Like mentioned previously, the legal theory of Carl Schmitt primarily survived from its adoption by Jewish scholars like Leo Strauss, uh, Walter Benjamin, Jacob Talbus, and others. His claim of sovereignty that proceeds from exceptional status was a perfect match for Jewish eschatology built around the concept of election. The ability to apply a double standard stands as the surest sign of a state of exception at work. According to the website Chabad.org, the double standard is an intrinsically Jewish value necessary for the continuity of the society within the wall. It states, double standards are supposedly unethical, yet Judaism the ethos contained in the Bible and expounded by the sages of Israel, abounds with double standards. In fact, these double standards are at the very the heart of how we live and what we have taught the world, and at the heart of what makes an ethical person. As proof of this, the article uses the example of how the intrinsic value of life can be adjusted according to friend-enemy distinctions, claiming, To kill an anti-life is not a life-destroying act. It is a life-preserving act. It is not a violation of the commandment, do not kill, but it's affirmation. Without the law, if someone is coming to kill you, rise against him and kill him first, the principle of life's infinite value is nothing more than an empty slogan, a mere idea. Judaism is not an idea, it is a way of life. God's idea is made real. The notion of an anti-life reeks of Orwellian doublespeak in statements like, war is peace. 
This artful linguistic equivocation can help to shed light on the phenomena surrounding Jewish perspectives on abortion in the public discourse. Mm. While pundits like Ben Shapiro and others on the right will claim that abortion violates the Mosaic Covenant, others on the left claim it is an intrinsic Jewish value that safeguards bodily autonomy and, as the Sephardic AOC put it cryptically, our right to worship. So which one is it? Our previous discussion on the antinomian and hypernomian conditions of the law and the advent of the messianic age seems to suggest that is both. The law exists as a backdrop to register the transgressive power of its violation. As St. Paul wrote, for as many who are of the works of the law are under a curse. It would seem Jewish antinomian tactics have discovered a workaround that derives mystical power by activating uh, mystical power through heresy. The mitzvah Hababa Bavira is the act of fulfilling the law by violating it. That has been translated in the Sabbatean context as redemption through sin. Another example would be the historical controversy of what, it, what has come to be called the blood libel. Witnesses spanning over a thousand years attested to events where Catholics, usually children, were abducted, ritually murdered, and drained of blood to be used in Passover rituals. The book Blood Passover by the Jewish writer Ariel Toaf chronicles these events and attests to their veracity and is only available for print in Israel. Toaf's father was Rabbi Elio Toaf of Rome, who participated in Vatican II and hosted John Paul II at his synagogue. The most common defense launched against the blood libel claim is that it is obviously an obvious uh, violation of the Mosaic law, thou shalt not kill, and the prohibition on the consumption of blood. However, the public ritual of the Mazitza Bepe, still performed by many Orthodox rabbis, where the circumcision blood is sucked directly by mouth from the infant boy attests to the contrary ritual performance of the mitzvah Hababa Bavira. This obliteration of the distinctions of the law are necessary for the unification of the Jewish soul into the divine infinite light, but is necessary for the non-Jewish soul to witness this transformation, consent, and ratify it while serving as a stationary background. So in following, the double standard is meant to be on full display, announcing dual status and dual citizenship of the elect social class. It is meant to disorient the stable precepts that undergird social reality, producing a form of worship. Similar to the use of double standards, shibboleths, or esoteric equivocations of common language, are used to differentiate an inside group who has the capacity to control reality through manipulating speech. According to Leo Strauss, not a private need, but only an urgent necessity of nationwide bearing can have driven Maimonides to transgress an explicit prohibition to write about esoteric matters. Only the necessity of saving the law can have it caused him to break the law. Although Maimonides is widely held to be a recipient of the tradition of realism and sturdy systematic writing on the framework of natural law, he reg regularly deployed double meanings, shibboleths, and esoteric codes to communicate knowledge reserved for the illuminated few. The later Kabbalistic thinker and self-proclaimed Messiah, Abraham Abelafia, established a method of deriving esoteric meaning from Maimonides' Guide to the Perplexed. A common tactic to conceal the universal authority of Kabbalah holds in Judaism is to posit a false dichotomy between Maimonidean legalism and Kabbalistic mysticism. However, the two are part and parcel of the same tradition. Abelafia developed a method of gematria and meditating on the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet to extract mystical meanings from the guide, as well as other rabbinic works in order for his followers to derive the power of prophecy. Directed prophecy became a common theme for subsequent mystics like the Baal Shem Tov, who overcame their marginal status as heretics to become sages. 
The worship of the Hebrew alphabet and its numerical corollary, gematria, is a common system within Kabbalah for divination. All reality is but the product of its linguistic root, which is found in the Torah. The linguistic body of the Torah that precedes creation is composed of the 22 letters and is sealed by the four letters of the Tetragrammaton, the yad heh vov as outlined in the pre-Kabbalistic mystical work called the Sefer Yetzirah. By rearranging these letters in various permutations, the mystic or prophet can manipulate material reality and accelerate messianic redemption. While this notion is practiced in theurgic form, it is also applied to the political realm of everyday life. The shibboleth is a term that has a hidden meaning for an inside group similar to passwords. Words like Torah, God, repentance, exile, secret, Messiah, justice, peace, etc. are used as magic cloaks that conceal hidden meaning for those adept at Kabbalistic interpretation. Internally within rabbinic discourse, the events of the Jewish genocide of World War II are referred to as the Shoah, which translates to the cataclysm or the disaster. On the other side, non-Jewish groups and nations are compelled to use the term Holocaust with a capital H without explanation of its biblical meaning. Holocaust remembrance is ubiquitous mandate within Christian nations who have adapted to Jewish power. As we have discussed, a Holocaust is a burnt offering as a form of worship and atonement. The idea of the, the burnt human offering to God implied in the Shibboleth contains and conceals a form of replacement theology that endeavors to dissolve the ontological foundation of Christian society built upon Jesus' eternal, eternal sacrifice on Calvary. As it proclaims in Ephesians 2, 12 through 16, that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the conversation of Israel and strangers to the Testament, having no hope of the promise and without God in this world. But now in Christ, you who sometime were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who hath made but one in breaking down the middle wall of partition, the enmities in his flesh, making void the law of commandments contained in decrees that he might make the two in himself into one new man, making peace, and might reconcile both both to God in one body by the cross, killing the enmities in himself. The enmity between Jew and non-Jew erected by the law has been overturned by the blood of Christ. All who believeth in him, who is the only source of absolute truth and objective reality, have become the one flesh united in the singularity of the new man. The phantasmagoric illusion evoked by the idea of a Holocaust reasserts the old enmity that sets apart the flesh of a chosen people against the perpetual threat of anti-Semitism, a distinction that has already been overcome in Christ. When Christians accept the term Holocaust, they linguistically consent to the nullification of Christ's sacrifice being eternal and for all. They submit to the presupposition that God continues to accept sacrifice for the atonement of sins, for the redemption of the world, and as a form of worship. By insisting on the term Holocaust, our cultural controllers reveal the weaponization of double meanings and double standards in order to induce a convocation of speech and thought that denies proper worship and redirects its focus toward a messianic social group. The convocation of worship is an ensemble of mutual consent and willful participation. In order to properly elucidate the dynamics of worship imagined by the practitioners of Kabbalah, we must first uncover the mystical creation story of the rabbinic tradition. Texts such as the Sefer Yetzirah, Sefer Zohar, and writings of Isaac Luria depict the formation of the universe as an act called Simsum, which was the initial movement within the undifferentiated and infinite light of the divine as an act of withdrawal. 
Prior to the initial opening in which the other than God could exist, the fullness of the divine plenum, Einsoff, prevented the capacity of any other, any being other than God. In order to create space in which otherness could take root, God performed an act of self-contraction through which a vacant space or void could form. This place, devoid of presence, can now serve as a potential space for the eventual unfolding of existence. This withdrawal or concealment of God's unlimited presence is concurrently the disclosure of God's delimitation. The eventual unfolding of existence is therefore predicated on the absence or concealment of God's godly presence. The whole of creation was initiated by an act of contraction and self-negation. In short, the simsum is a model for how creation manages to beget something out of nothing from a paradoxical act of self-destruction. The path toward the oneness of being is the path toward nothingness, the hiddenness that is the essence that betrays no essence, as it is the unity beyond differentiation and therefore beyond unity, a concealment that can be revealed only to the, ex the extent that it is concealed. Worship within this dialectical axis appears to be appears in the following three forms. The first is what Sneerson and the Kabbalists refer to as the worship as worship in the aspect of Yehida, or what I call reunion as annihilation. The second I refer to as the worship of the veil or the open secret in which revelation and concealment operate according to the coincidentia oppositorum, where revealing the secret reveals the secret within the secret. Lastly, we discuss the worship of repentance that transforms guilt into innocence by, an, by what Elliot Wolfsman calls hypernomian transvaluation of the law. <clears throat> As we mentioned previously, Yehida means the unification of the dimension of the soul unique to the Jewish people, and by virtue of which the Jew can be united with the one true essence at the source of emanation, a nullification of existence, which is also described as the absorption in the oneness of Einsoff. Yehida is the highest gradation of the soul, wherein good and evil are indistinguishable, and hence it is possible and, there, and necessary for one thing to morph into its opposite. The essence of the infinite light, which has no essence, is uniquely located in the point in the heart of each Jew that must be roused through a process of destruction of the outer restraints of the law in order to reincorporate into the unknowable one. As Nearson said, through it one can sense the truth of the substance of the supernal will, as it is in its simplicity, whose end is the will itself. Access to the supernal will above wills narrows the gap between creator and created in regard to the Jewish nation who claims exclusive rights to unification with the divine. The higher dimensions of the soul, Yehida, is the point where God joins his nation in the present. The messianic mission of the sovereign people is the divine disclosure on this, of this fact as a form of worship that is accomplished by proxy in the minds of non-Jews who respect and recognize the exceptional status of the chosen people. The divine disclosure is made possible by Israel's worship as the self-annulment and the disclosure of the infinite and finite reality. This infinitude is achieved by dissolving categories, annihilating distinctions, applying the exception, and employing double standards. The infinite will to power, supplanting the noble God, is unleashed by the dissolution of ontological categories that construct the noble world. The Jewish nation is the essence of God, whose essence is unknowable except as the will of the Jewish nation. The nullification of the free will transforms into the infinite will. Worship in the aspect of Yehida requires the de deconstruction of axiological categories that undergird, undergird our notions of reality. The future, as presented by the World Economic Forum and its spokesman Yuval Noah Harari, author of Jewish Magic Before the Rise of Kabbalah, 
posit an image of the world to come that is strikingly similar to the Jewish utopia outlined by Rabbi Michael Higger in, his, in the early 20th century. To quote Harari, in this future, the idea of free will is over. This post-industrial utopia will be defined as post-human, post-nature, post-truth, post-reality, and as we will discuss, post-temporality occurring in the non-event. <clears throat> According to Wolfson, mysticism is tagged as the ability to acquire gnosis of and to be integrated within the non-differentiated essence. But on the other hand, in that very essence, opposites are no longer distinguishable once it would follow that the schism between Jew and non-Jew would be subject to subversion. The mystical impulse cultivated by Kabbalists allows us to speak of a universal singularity that is universal effacing of boundaries that is nevertheless the singular dispensation of one ethnic faction to execute. As Plato said, that which deceiveth a man produces a magical enchantment. The second form of worship we will call revelation as concealment or the open secret, the dialectic of the exoteric and the esoteric, the veiled and the unveiling, figure heavily in the apocalyptic messianism of Hasidism, Habad, and Kabbalism more broadly. Just as the word apocalypse translates from the Greek to mean the unveiling, the handler of the veil, like the one who decides the, ex the state of exception, would seem to hold the power to direct the apocalypse and control revelation. Like we stated above, the Kabbalistic belief in the Simsum at the dawning of time implies the act of creation is sim simultaneously a concealment. The veil that resides between the secret and its disclosure is the only vessel that can apprehend the infinite light that passes through it. Since all of reality can only be perceived through a veil from this view, the disclosure of the secret, since the essence of the secret is the nullification of all distinctions, reveals the coincidence of good and evil, truth and fiction, the event and the non-event. In this sense, the veil must be employed as a weapon to overcome these divisions in reality, uniting all into the absolute nothing, without, without knowledge of the coincidence of opposites and its special status in mystical gnosis. The unsuspecting person is dialectically enfolded into the open secret that attempts to elicit from them the perverse desire to penetrate the secret and return to a more stable reality. This convocation of desire translates into a form of worship, allying the will with, with harness intensity toward the temptation to penetrate the mystery. To quote Rabbi Schneerson, the vessel for bringing in the coming of Messiah is the dissemination of the wellsprings of the secrets outward by means of engagement with the Torah and especially the light Kabbalah that is in the Torah, which is the teaching of ascetism. The darkness with, uh, will be transformed into light. The purpose of the overflow of the wellsprings meaning the conveying of the mystical secrets to the profane, is the transformation of darkness into light. However, the increase in the emanation of light is commiserate to the amplification of darkness. Just as the darkness is greatest before the dawn, the need to propagate secrets is proportionate to the intensification of their concealment. Paradoxically, then, the dark itself is proof of the imminence of redemption, and the more one thinks about the darkness, the, one, the more one will think about the light. Redemption on this account is the fulfillment of revelation by amplifying the darkness in the world through cultural programming. The anticipation of the infinite light is cultivated by inviting speculation on sex trafficking rings and satanic rituals. Masters of media, media accelerate the process of redemption by reaping the whirlwind and immunitizing the apocalypse. The most secret of secrets is the open secret because it is so fully disclosed that it appears not to be secret. This employment of the secret is part of pharmakeia that magic that deceives the whole world. 
like the Simsum who reveals by concealing the PSYOP, psychological operation in contemporary parlance, does more than merely convey a counterfeit series of events. As we saw this week with the seemingly satanic Grammy performance and the prior social media posts by the host network CBS claiming we are ready to worship, the secret and the revelation are unfolded in the same capsule. It would seem that the public suggestion of a secret satanic cabal revealed in the mind of conservative viewers is part of the act. Like the notion of adversity marketing, this attempt to capture the imagination of the Christian right feeds off in it the enmity generated by conspiracy theory that endeavors to validate itself with public recognition of proof, which always seems to slip through the grasp. <clears throat> However, merely ignoring these pseudo-events won't make them go away, seeing as the aggregore has already been elicited in the public consciousness in a convocation of call and response. The open secret induces worship by generating etheric energy and mystification by revealing what it conceals. Our only hope is to neutralize this pattern by exposing its inner logic to break its spell. Likewise, as Sneerson stated, there's no namish that is not mashal, which means there's no literal that is not allegorical and metaphoric. Actuality is the correspondence of these two registers and meaning. The open secret triggers a meta, a meta level of signification that unfolds imminent and transcendent into the purely imminent. For instance, one may perceive the actual spy balloon as a metaphoric trial balloon folded out to monitor public response. The internet memes that posture theatrically of shooting it down answer the open call of the secret by simultaneously ignoring the supposedly domestic surveillance system that expands every moment without public mm -hmm. veto or outcry. The notion of a Chinese spy balloon presupposes our domestic spy agencies are American and therefore participates in the open secret by omitting a portion of reality. As John F. Kennedy stated in his fatal speech, the president and the press, the very idea of secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. The flaunting of the existence of state secrets, the publicization of hidden truth, unavailable to public scrutiny, redacted documents, etc., signal the nullification of the viability of a functioning democracy, one that must be paradoxically protected from foreign invasion. Within this nexus, the concept of free will is dissolved into the supernal infinite will of the unknown God by annihilating the limits of the one and the many. Building from this sense of controlled revelation that withholds a deeper secret, concepts such as the PSYOP, the false flag, and predictive programming assault the ontological basis of time as a strategy toward redemption and to induce collective worship. For the Kabbalists, the world exists as the play between manifestation and concealment. The nullification of the public occurrence, what we will call the advent of the non-event, parallels the thinking of the French post-structuralist philosopher Jean Baudrillard's concept of hyper-reality. Two of his most famous quotes were, Disneyland is the most real place in America, and the conflict of De Desert Storm was a non-event. We will revisit these claims in light of the messianic thinking of Rebbe Menachem Mendel Schneerson in relation to the temporality of the messianic movement. <clears throat> Exploding the literal presuppositions of Zionism and the promise of a promised land, Rabbi Schneerson stated, it is necessary to know that we stand on the boundary of the land of Israel and that through one's power and one's capability in one moment and in one second, one can enter the land of Israel in the true and complete redemption by means of revealing the point of the inwardness of, a heart, of the heart. For, for this is the matter of redemption and the coming of the Messiah in each and every Jew. Then the general redemption of the coming of the Messiah will be realized in actuality. 
The shibboleths abound in the statement where terms like inwardness of the heart, redemption, land of Israel, actuality, and Messiah are transmogrified to reflect the infinite essence that undermines the very definition of these ideas. Resolving these contradictions, the German-Jewish philosopher Hermann Cohen proposed a notion of messianic time that he described as asymptotic. Rejecting the concept of a personal Messiah, Cohen, who was anti-Zionist in the literal sense, adopted the position of a collective Jewish messianism defined by a model of time that infinitely spiraled in on itself without reaching fulfillment, narrowing the gap between creator and created. In order to overcome the restraints of reality, this conception of messianism involves the perpetual delay of the occurrence, even as it secures its constant potentiality. Since the coming of the Messiah eliminates the dualistic distinctions present in our current reality, including the opposition of presence and absence, then the relation between the event and its non-occurrence, both future and past, implies that the Messiah has already come in his absence, which does not correspond to any presence. We are left with pure simulation, a hall of mirrors, the non-event that defies temporal location. Wolfson states, it is imperative to recall that the conception of time is such that the quintessential aspect of temporality is the moment in which there is a compression of past, present, and future. An idea that is adduced as the metaphysical import of the most sacred of names of God's names in the Jewish tradition, the Tetragrammaton, the yad heh vov -Heh, meaning he was, he is, and he will be. The Chabad masters delimit the now as an atemporal present in which the three temporal, temporal modalities coalesce. Just as we say of the divine that he reigned, he reigns, and he shall reign, not sequentially, but concurrently, since God is above time. From the standpoint of the infinite, all time is comprised in what they call the little moment, or the minuscule moment, the smallest of demarcations, the infinitesimal point that contains all difference indifferently, as it is not coincidental. The unfolding of the tripartite nature of time into the singular moment is the mystical meaning of the tetragrammaton. This this notion of the eternity of God that we profess in the glory be as it as it was, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, seeks to harness the infinite temporal scope in the works of man. The aspect of worship appears in this nexus in the form of false flag events, such as Event 201, NORAD terrorist attack simulations occurring on the morning of September 11th, the announcement by the BBC that Building 7 had collapsed moments before its actual destruction in which the simulation of the event is scripted over top of the actual occurrence. This negation of the facticity in the event shatters the vessel of historical time and extracts its spark into the infinite. Since the Messiah may not arrive without reconstituting the opposition of presence and absence, the unfolding of occurrence and non-occurrence, the advent of the non-event can be seen as a strategy toward transcending the tripartite nature of time. The avoiding of the event transmits the light of the moment into the infinite. The sovereign messianic people inspire worshipful amazement with their mandate to generate unordinary time, to initiate and extend the state of emergency. The advent of the non-event is the mystical garden of Eden, the promised land. From this view, the world to come is constantly in a state of becoming, swallowed in the darkness before the dawn, a perpetual state of apocalypse. Moving forward, the final aspect of Kabbalistic worship we will discuss is, Nearson, is what Nisirson referred to as the worship of repentance. Although this term signifies in the Christian context the humble confession of sins, 
Within the esoteric soteriology of Hasidism and Chabad, it takes on a radically separate connotation. The system of teshuva outlined in Maimonides, by Maimonides renders repentance to mean the return to the center or the oneness of primordial being. Although this sounds very similar to the affirmation notion of Yehida, repentance centers more on, an, on the transvaluation of guilt into innocence through antinomian ritual practice, the transubstantiation of evil into good. According to a Talmudic dictum adopted by Kabbalists, messianic redemption is dependent on repentance. Esoterically construed, the rabbinic teaching implies that repentance is a temporal incident that is not subject to the conventional tripartite delineation of time. To say that redemption is initiated by repentance means that it will transpire as a matter of, as masters of the Chabad Lubavitch dynasty frequently emphasized, in one moment and in one second, that is, in an interval of time that is not temporal. Repentance as the transvaluation of permissible and forbidden, holy and profane, good and evil, alchemically transforms guilt into innocence. According to the Talmud, great is repentance which hastens the redemption. Repentance is the metaphysical act that accelerates the process of redemption through apocalypse. The prophetic mage, in this sense, directs the eschatological process by manipulating the law. Again, to quote the Talmud, the repentance of utterly wicked people prevents suffering from coming upon them. And although the sentence of judgment has already been signed against them for suffering, the repentance presents them from being punished. Didn't Reish Lakish himself say, great is repentance as one's intentional sins are counted for him as merits. We can see from this context how the phenomena of what we call the revelation of the method elicits a form of karmic release for those who do evil and partially reveal their guilt in the process as a way to accelerate the redemption of the world. This antinomianism presupposes the messianic Torah, the law beyond the law, that will govern the world to come. This law will disavow the demarcation of the revealed Torah in the present age insofar as the new law will be characterized by a unity that overcomes the permissible and forbidden. Repentance is the agency that alchemically transforms vice into virtue. Sin is not, is not neutralized by repentance as it is in the Christian context, but is actually elevated over the good. This aspect of repentance must impress upon its, it, itself upon the collective consciousness in order to transform reality and thus perform the, the work of the Messiah by overcoming the law. The transformation of guilt into innocence takes place in the minds of those who witness the admission of guilt in the form of predictive programming, but refuse to name the, the culprits or even more submissively to even ask the question. The image of Moses shattering the tablets signifies in the Kabbalistic context, the matter of repentance and the mystical meaning of the Torah as a standard to be transcended. Um, repentance is the power of the mystical adept to convert evil into good through Gnostic insight and the will to power. While the Torah still falls under the category of what is measurable and delimited, repentance is immeasurable and limitless and thus stipulates a higher mode of worship accessible to the Jewish people. For according to Snearson, the souls of Israel are above the Torah. As is known in the matter of the thought of Israel, preceded everything, including the thought of the Torah. The apocalyptic vision of the Rebbe is predicated on what Wolfson calls the hypernomian, as opposed to antinomian orientation, which is connected to the mystical attainment of non-differentiated oneness beyond the law and via the Jewish people. This space beyond the law within the state of exception is resolved for the messianic class whose repentance has the capacity to turn wrongdoing into merit and to turn one thing into his opposite. Through this, the revelation of the method induces cos cosmic consent, an alignment and convocation of wills that produces what we call an egregore, a mystical body of faith filled with awe, wonder, and fear. 
To conclude, the final subject we will discuss in regard to Kabbalistic soteriology is the concept of controlled revelation and directed apocalypticism. The philosopher Eric Vogelin introduced the notion of the immunitization of the eschaton into modern political science as a critique of the utopian projects of the 20th century to explain the Promethean effort of regimes to bring heaven to earth by the collective will and imagination. As we explore above, the dialectical conflation of perpetual war and imminent paradise is the formula by which Kabbalists and Stearson imagine the world to come. The German legal theorist we discussed earlier in regards to this theory of the state of emergency and the state of exception, Carl Schmitt, explored this dialectic in his works Nomos of the Earth and Land and Sea. According to Schmitt, the archetypes of civilization can be reduced to the dual form of the Nomos of the Land and the Nomos of the Sea. The Nomos here is the system of organization defined by its orientation to the space or landscape it occupies that defines the society's interior logic and teleos. A civilization organized by the nomos of the land gives rise to essential conservatism in what can be called traditional society, defined by fixed borders, which reflects the immobility and fixity of land. In contrast, the nomos of the sea is hostile traditional, to traditional society and is defined by global transformation of consciousness that seeks fluidity in social, legal, and ethical standards. Going even further, Schmidt associated these two forms of social order with the typology of Leviathan and Behemoth from the Old Testament and the land beast and the sea beast of Revelation 13. He saw these two legal forms seeking totalization on the global scale in what he called gross realm, meaning great spaces or total states that would be perpetually set against one another in a total war of forms. The outer dialectic of nationalism and internationalism conceals the inner kernel of Zionism and communism both of which are iterations of the same Jewish messianic project that stages war with itself in order to manufacture eschatology by accelerating the political contradictions. To quote Vladimir Lenin, the best way to control the opposition is to lead it ourselves, or to quote Anthony Sutton, to become the best enemies money can buy. The political religion of nationalism, of sacred geography, blood and soil, when removed from the social kingship of Christ, becomes spiritually sick, unleashing the demonic in politics, needing purification through violence. In the book, The Jewish Century by Yuri Z uh, Sleeking, the author states, the principal religion of the modern age is nationalism, a faith that represents the new society as the old community that allows newly urbanized princes and peasants to feel at home abroad. Every state must be a tribe. Every tribe must have a state, every land is promised, every language Adamic, every capital Jerusalem, every people chosen and ancient. The age of nationalism, in other words, is about every nation becoming Jewish. In 19th century Europe, the birthplace of the age of nationalism, the greatest exception was the Jews themselves, the most successful of all modern tribes, they're also the most vulnerable. For the Kabbalists, the dialectical typology between Leviathan and Behemoth is used as a theme for the wedding feast of the Messiah at the end of time. Important to note here is that Talmud and Zohar frequently expound on the pseudepigraphical writings, in this case, the Apocalypse of Baruch, Fourth Ezra, and the Trilogy of Enoch, as much as the canonical works of sacred scripture. These books depict a great battle at the end of time, like Revelation 13, where the land beast Behemoth battles the great Leviathan, bringing the whole world to the brink of destruction. The righteous Jews are protected by the Leviathan until he is slain by Behemoth, both of which are slaughtered and served at the great feast for the elect. The skin of the great dragon will be tarped overhead as a sukkah tent that illuminates the feast representing the messianic unity attained in Yehida.
The secrets of Leviathan and Behemoth, as it is called in the rabbinic corpus, seem to allude to the managed dialectic of sociopolitical powers of land and sea. In his book, 1984, George Orwell imagined a dystopian future in which the superstates of Oceania and Eurasia are at constant war with one another. This perpetual state of emergency justifies the massive surveillance state of Oceania under the mantra of war is peace. Likewise, the contemporary Russian Orthodox political philosopher Alexander Dugin has imagined a total civilizational war of forms between the Atlanticist powers of the West and the Eurasianist traditionalism of the East. It would seem, based upon the oversized influence of the Chabad Kabbalists on the regimes of Putin, Zelensky, uh, not to mention the NATO countries and the Russian Orthodox Church, the Ukrainian war would seem to fulfill the typology of the Leviathan and Behemoth. As Zelensky has stated, after the war, Ukraine will become Big Israel, which seems in keeping with Snearson's model of Zionism, in which the Russian and Ukrainian forces would, would seem to be collaborators for the rebuilding of a nation that could blur the boundary between the Third Rome, the Third Khazaria, and the Third Temple. Well, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Tucker, for that presentation. I have to say I'm deeply impressed. Your paper there is is clearly the fruit of much reading of new sources, your own meditation, and then you've clearly engaged with the thought of, of some major figures there as well. And I salute your bravery in grappling with, with these topics. So there was a lot of juice in there, and that was actually the, the condensed synoptic version that Mr. Tucker was, was kind enough to present there. So I really look forward to, to when it's published, to think about there that you've brought up. One thing there that I think that the lens that you've presented can be applied to is, is regarding this left-right dialectic. And in your most recent video on Dr. Deep State, Utopia Through Negation, you make a comment there, which I'd like to quote. You say, uh, so this is regarding, by the way, what I've termed neo-traditionalists, the sort of mainstream Catholic trad discourse, which, as I've discussed with previous guests, has a certain sort of adjacency to the Republican Party and the right wing of the world order, at least for some of the organizations and figures. And you said, quote, our criticism of the neo-traditionalist was aimed at commentators and influencers who can talk all day about political solutions to the WEF, the New World Order, the Great Reset, but can never or won't connect the dots back to the JQ. More importantly, they won't identify how this corresponds to biblical typology and prophecy. The march towards Antichrist is a dialectical process that needs to harness the political will of those on the right in the church, end quote. And then you give us an example, this discourse that's made about Freemasonry, infiltration, the altar vendita, which has a lot of truth to it. It's quite general. It's quite vague. And then there's willful ignoring of something like Pope Francis meeting Benai Brith in the Vatican just a few months ago. Um, so what your interlocutor, Dr. Haugen, said in response to this was this, quote, 
part of the consciousness is not to take these exceptional people and critique or compare them in any way. There is a whole category of things you just can't speak about. And I would say something for exa- examples there, 9-11, what really happened, usury, private credit creation by the money power, central banking, and then of course, Jewish power. Back to Dr. Haugen, you can't put them on the table with other variables and analyze them. Every time we can't speak about something like this that touches on political religion, we are feeding this egregore because we're allowing for this state of exception, submitting to the idea that there are these people who have an exceptional status and they can't be analyzed in the same way we analyze any other variables, end quote. So you're familiar with the, with the writing of Dr. Plinio Crea de Oliveira and his analysis of First of all, the three revolutions against the Christian social order, which you know, the popes have talked about and is a very prominent theme in Catholic thought about modernity, the Protestant revolution, the liberal revolution, the communist revolution. Dr. Plinio added the, the fourth and fifth revolutions, which we've discussed on this podcast before, the fourth revolution, the anarchic cultural revolution that you could date post-Second World War period, particularly in 1968, it's a kind of symbolic culmination of that revolution. And then the, the fifth revolution, which, which is the aborning occult satanic revolution. Now, it seems that with each of these revolutions, there has to be mass bloodshed. There's something Satan requires victims. Historically, you think of the, the dead from the Protestant revolution, the wars of religion that followed in Europe, uh, that Europe had never seen that kind of carnage before, the the kind of death and destruction that Napoleon brought across Europe with the French Revolution and then the revolutions that followed in the 19th century. This thing just snowballing with then the communist revolution and the, the deaths uh, that resulted in the 20th century, and I would include national socialism as being part of that revolution clues in the name that's another topic and then with the fourth revolution the 2.5 billion approximately unborn lives that have been that have been sacrificed so that people can have consequence free sex there's a, a growing offering of sacrifice with each of these these revolutions and it seems that when there's a paradigm shift when there's a revolution there's a lot of bloodshed so we're in this I would say this, what some people called the Second World War victory truth regime. You touched on a few terms from Michel Foucault. I think this idea of truth regimes is, is a Foucaultian concept. But there is this taboo, the Jew taboo, because of s- sacred narratives around the Second World War. Now, I'm not passing comment on the historicity of, of those events themselves, and I very much would point out the neo-pagan, evil, revolutionary nature of of Nazism. But when national socialism, mid-century Germans, becomes the embodiment of ultimate evil, it necessarily, that is very bad for a, a culture's moral hierarchy, moral universe, because it necessarily replaces what previously was the epitome of evil, the seven deadly sins, the devil, the demonic. And so We've got now, for example, the Ukrainian 
war and Putin is saying that the Ukrainians are are Nazis and it's a denazification operation. The West is saying Putin is the next Hitler. We're still within this post-Second World War truth regime. And it's it's very tiresome, it's very tedious, and it's it's very depressing how it has such purchase within the hierarchy of the Catholic Church that that taboo is still prioritized over preaching the gospel in season and out of season. Any thoughts on that? Yes, certainly. There, um, You touched on a lot of points. Um, uh, you know, this idea of bloodshed being attached to revolution uh, or sort of the unleashing of the demonic in politics. So there's this sense of, you know, the blood activating a, a kind of etheric energy, but also subduing um, the consciousness of a population. You think about like the Roman spectacles and the Colosseums in which, you know, the citizens would attend and watch, you know, tens of thousands of exotic animals be slaughtered in front of them. And, 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 you know, human life was so expendable and this shedding of blood was almost uh, mundane to it in a sense. Um, and then there becomes like a kind of consensus in which people, the, the value of life, the values you know, of suffering and bloodshed uh, is meaningless. And you see that now paralleled in, you know, the, the, the pro-abortion um, movement with this just flagrant, like, um, you know, celebration of the act of, of killing the innocent as a, a type of um, second reality or artificial reality that, like you said, disconnects us from uh, Catholic Christian truths. And it seems that the church is um, sort of swept up in this kind of fluidity of, of meaning and of, of this, you know, transvaluation of, of truth. Um, and it does seem to be linked in a sense to, um, uh, you know, the state of exception that happened after World War II in which, you know, the, um, the Holocaust narrative was extended over, you know, the whole of Western civilization. Right. So that, right. so that um, and not held in parallel with like, you know, the, um, the genocides by the, you know, uh, Jewish regime in, you know, the Soviet Union and not these two things in tandem saying, hey, this is what, what happened when the value of life was so devalued, you know, de depreciated. Uh, it's, it's that this one sacrifice over here is the, um, is the, 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 the standard by which all human sacrifices to be, uh, to be examined uh, moving forward, and it's the most sacred of sacreds within cultural speech, and it's the most taboo thing to to question. Um, so, yeah, I, um, and it seems like the church, it, it was the, the point of leverage within Vatican II that, you know, the state of exception that the church had to tangle with, that, you know, we can't um, have these teachings that, you know, come from, you know, the tradition of the church father, St. John Chrysostom, and, you know, St. Paul in the gospel uh, about, like the typology of the, the Jews leading toward antichrist and, you know, the, the, um, um, the, uh, yes, the, uh, the domination of the whole world, um, that we, we can't speak about those things in that way anymore because they've led to this extreme form of violence. So anyway, um, yeah, I think it's important to see that thing as a state of exception. Carl Schmitt's a really interesting figure to see here who, you know, had kind of a, cloudy, um, you know, murky relationship to Jewish thinkers like Walter Benjamin and Gershom Scholem and, um, you know, who, who they claim was a Catholic, uh, but it seems like his uh, political theology was directed toward this extreme form of nationalism and, you know, fulfilling the goals of the nation state more so than, you know, 
the the uh, social kingship of Christ. So, yeah, um, this, uh, you know, I hadn't thought about abortion in the sense of it being, uh, you know, continuation of these uh, these revolutionary movements that are founded upon, you know, ritual bloodshed, but that does um, seem to be um, what's going on there for sure. Yeah, Mark Coops, who's been on this podcast before, has spoken very insightfully about the sacrificial logic of the act of abortion in a number of essays on the New Polity website and how since everyone knows abortion's wrong and they know it's taking of a life, when a woman opts to do that, she is she must necessarily, if she is to function even a limited extent, she must idolize those things for which she is choosing to sacrifice her own child for, whether it's her career or her education or her comfort of life or ongoing physical pleasure. And hence why Amazon will pay for its employees to have an abortion in another state, because they know that is to keep those idols in their place in the publics, in the neo-pagan public square. But something you you touched on. So I'm I'm glad that you've raised the thought of Carl Schmidt. I think he's a very interesting thinker to engage with. I'm going to be speaking with your your collaborator, Dr. Haugen, in depth about Carl Schmidt and the state of exception, how he is, I think, one of the main philosophers that the oligarchs are looking to to inform their strategy. But what you mentioned about Yes, these these sacred narratives. We know that we're de- dealing with, as you say, political religion because of that taboo energy that these Second World War narratives have. If you, if I was to be invited to a, a polite cocktail party, the way to cause the most profound silence in the room would be to suddenly start talking about the power of the synagogue, mm-hmm. um, and and that very fact reveals that we are touching on religious matters here there's a political religious dynamic ongoing which is right at the heart of the current truth regime the dispensation of the of the second world war post second world war period that is being uh, has been utilized to advance this dialectical process yes yes certainly and with the you know the uh the Nostra Tate document, the um, conciliar church, that is one of the central themes of this uh, ecumenism or like the inner core of it is that there has to be this special status for, um, you know, the, the covenant that was fulfilled by Christ. Um, it's that, that um, supersessionism that the church represents has to be viewed as a sense of uh, uh, chauvinism or, or, or latent violence um, that, uh, needs to be uh, recaptured and subdued by this invisible power that's unnameable, as you just said, and un, um, unmentionable. And we can see then that that's the state ex- state of exception at work. And um, you know, like like you you referenced before, when we see the World Jewish Congress and the B'nai B'rith, uh, but all the you know radical 
neo-traditionalist pundits are focusing on the Freemason, you know, who, who could be possibly a Freemason and who's making the, the, the hand signals. And you can't see the, you know, the, one of the most premier lodges in Freemasonry is, you know, set up camp in um, the Vatican um, and has, you know, the, these public meetings with Francis. That's, that's something that you can't speak of. And, you know, that's the, um, that's the true sovereign. The sovereign is the one who's outside of uh, the limits of the law and the, the limits of scrutiny. So, um, that that's a profound insight to maybe draw this broadcast to a close. I think that you've given the listeners plenty of of things to digest and and think about and consider how it pertains to contemporary discourse. Things like the paradox of the open secret. As as we start seeing this slow release of vaccine injury information, how fulfills an alchemical sorcerous purpose. Uh, there's a metapolitics there, being aware of the dangers of the right wing of the dialectic. So it would be uh, to have you back on Vendée Radio, Mr. Tucker, in the future, I think particularly to discuss the Eurasianist versus Atlanticist, Behemoth versus Leviathan, who are both demons, as you know, dialectic as well, how that's unfolding, this sort of esoteric geopolitics. But for now, if you want to leave the, the uh, listeners with any final points and where they can continue following your work. Certainly. Thank you so much, Peter, for this opportunity. And uh, it's really a pleasure. I love listening to this channel. And um, uh, yeah, I'm flattered by the the um, open invitation. I'd love to do this again anytime. You just uh, let, let me know. And um, yes, please uh, subscribe and tune into our channel, Dr. Deep State, and look for for um, Dr. Haugen's upcoming book um, that we mentioned previously. And you can find his other book on Amazon, uh, Seeing Through the Singularity. It was highly influential for me. Um, and I certainly recommend it to your to your readers, even though it was written before his recent um, conversion, as, as well as mine. We're both recent converts. So keep that in mind if you check out our, our channel. So um, God bless you, Peter. God bless this channel. And uh, I look forward to talking with you in the future. God bless you, Mr. Tucker. Thank you very much. Viva Cristo Rey.